Today's scripture reading is 2 Samuel 6, The Ark Brought to Jerusalem. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Azah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart which, which, with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Azah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Azah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Azah, and to this day that place is called Perez Azah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord to him with the, to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because, the ark of, because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the Ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he had blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and will be humiliated in my own eyes. But these slave girls you speak of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As we enter into the book of Samuel again this morning, our prayer is that we would know you more and that you would shape and fashion us in the likeness of Christ. 
Amen. I expect these days that most people's knowledge of the Ark of the Covenant, if they have any at all, owes more to Indiana Jones than it does to the Bible. I confess it was tempting to title today's sermon, Removers of the Lost Ark, or even Aiders of the Lost Ark, although as we'll see, attempting to aid the Ark is not the wisest course of action. In the movie, when the Ark is opened, power bursts out of it and eliminates the Nazis who've taken it to use for their own purposes. It targets the bad guys. But in the Bible story that we come to today, it is someone who, at least at first glance, seems to be one of the good guys who ends up being struck down by the Lord. Uzzah reaches out a hand to prevent the ark falling from the cart that it's traveling on and loses his life for this act. Our passage today is also famous for the occasion on which David dances naked before the Lord. This used to provoke great hilarity among the youth group that I led years ago when we sang a chorus that included the line, we will dance as David danced. The problem, of course, is that the Bible explicitly contradicts this, describing David's clothing as the same as that of the priests in the procession. The idea that David was naked actually comes from the Jewish historian Josephus about a thousand years later. Nevertheless, these are the two great questions of the chapter. Eugene Peterson, the author of The Message, wrote a famous essay on this passage entitled, Why Did Uzzah Die? Why Did David Dance? These are our questions this morning. And their answers will tell us something about worship that for many of us, I think, will be unexpected. At the beginning of the chapter, the ark is a forgotten relic of Israel's past. It has lain in the house of Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim, eight or nine miles west-northwest of Jerusalem, for perhaps 50 years or more, never given any attention at all, no attention throughout the whole reign of David's predecessor, Saul. The ark itself was a small rectangular box, just one meter 30 long, uh, 80 centimeters high, and 80 centimeters wide made of acacia wood, uh, plated with gold inside and out. And it had a cover made of gold with two cherubim on top and four gold rings at the bottom, two on each side, through which uh, poles could be inserted so that the ark could be carried on the shoulders. Instructions for its construction were given by the Lord to Moses uh, the account is in the book of Exodus chapter 25 and it ends with these words. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. As a result of this, the ark was understood to be the primary meeting place with God. This space at the top was known as the mercy seat. David also refers to the ark as the Lord's footstool, evoking the image of God enthroned in heaven, with the ark on earth being the, the foot of the throne where heaven touches earth. Inside the ark were placed the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. 
There was also a jar of manna, the heavenly bread which had sustained the Israelites through their journey in the wilderness. And also Aaron's staff, which had budded. As such, the ark represented all that God had done to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and to form them into a people for himself under the law. It's not surprising then that a strategic thinker like David, having established himself politically and militarily, would next turn to this most significant of religious symbols. And yet in saying that, I'm doing David a disservice. For him, this was not an object for his own use. Just as he sought the Lord's guidance concerning going into battle against the Philistines, so uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, we're told that it was God's will for him to bring the ark to Jerusalem. For David, the ark was more than a symbol. It genuinely represented the presence of God in the midst of his people. And David recognized that his own rule over Israel was only rule on behalf of God. As 2 Samuel 5 verse 12 states, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, that is God's people, Israel. Where King Saul had failed to give the Lord his rightful place, effectively usurping God's rule in Israel, David understood that God's presence must be at the heart of national life, literally, as well as metaphorically. So David calls together a vast gathering, 30,000 young men, to participate in this huge national event. And he travels the few miles to Kiriath-Jerim to the house of Abinadab. The question that raises, of course, is why was the ark in the house of Abinadab? How did it end up there? After its construction, the ark was put into the care of the Levites, the priestly tribe, and specifically the Kohathite branch of the Levites. And it was done so with the warning in Numbers chapter 4 that even they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The ark entered the promised land with the Israelites, leading the way across the Jordan River and remained in their possession during the following two centuries until a battle occurred 20 years before Saul became king between Israel and the Philistines. Initially, the Israelites were defeated by the Philistines. And the book of Samuel tells us that as a result, the Israelites sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. But the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's uh, two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests who accompanied the ark, died. 
You can see in our passage today echoes of this account of the loss of the ark in the story of its recovery to national life. The 30,000 men, the, the, the priest's two sons, the recovery of the ark after victory over the Philistines and, and so on. So the ark was captured by the Philistines and Phineas's wife is given the final say on the loss of the ark. The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured, she says. This was how significant the ark had been to Israel. The glory of God has departed from Israel. However, its capture did not turn out well for the Philistines. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us. So they moved it to Gath. But after they'd moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they've brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So again, it was sent away. And after seven months of this, the priests and rulers of the Philistines determined it must be sent back to Israel. With the Philistine priests giving these instructions. Get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart. And in a chest inside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to Israel as a guilt offering. Send it on its way. So this is what they did. And the cart in due course arrived among the Israelites in Beth Shemesh. The people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent the messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. It always makes me smile. It's like the, the passing on of the unwanted Christmas present if that Christmas present was a, a rod of nuclear fuel. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the Ark of the Lord. And there it had sat these many years since, uncelebrated and out of the public eye. The ark, which was the people of God's meeting place with him, ignored. 
all but forgotten. Now, at last, in front of young men from all the tribes of Israel, in this great national celebration, the ark was to be returned to the center of national life. And then, disaster strikes. The ark is put on a cart with Abinadab's sons, Uzzah and Ahio, guiding it. And all of the 30,000 men and the crowds who had gathered to see the procession cheering and celebrating and the, the cacophonous noise of all of these instruments. And then the oxen stumble. Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark. And God strikes him dead. The whole triumphant procession is called off. Instead of a tremendous celebration, the 30,000 return home disappointed, frustrated, and confused. And David is left full of anger and fear. So why does Uzzah die when he seems to be trying to prevent the ark from being damaged? The answer is the holiness of God. We tend to think of God's holiness in ethereal terms, as if it's a characteristic of God, like his omnipotence or the the fact that he's all-knowing. It's good that God is these things, all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, but they don't really have anything to do with us. But of course, that's not true. The holiness of God is our single biggest problem as sinful human beings. When a sinful human being comes into contact with a holy, a sinless God, there is only one outcome, death. Our sins, all the ways in which we fall short of the Lord's perfect standard, mean that we are like ice cubes meeting a blazing fire. We are so cold, God is so hot, we simply melt away. Sometimes we talk about Jesus as if what he does is to give us an asbestos coating so that we ice cubes can stand in the presence of God's flame. But that's not right. On the cross, Jesus took all of the coldness of our sinful hearts away, and he placed the flame of his spirit in us so that there is now nothing between us and the pillar of fire that is the living God. The story of Uzzah, like that of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament and and others in the Bible, reminds us that the God we sing about and pray to and ignore is white hot in his purity and consequently totally unsafe for sinful human beings to be around. Lots of elements of this account point to the reasons for Uzzah's death. I wonder if you noticed, for example, that instead of Kohathites carrying the ark as the Lord had instructed, it was placed by its keepers, Uzzah and Ahio, on a cart, following the same procedure the Philistines had used to transport it when they were desperate to get rid of it. Notice, too, that the procession here is all about celebration. There are no sacrifices made, nothing done to acknowledge the unworthiness of Israel to have God's presence represented by the ark in their midst. 
nothing to signify their humility before it. It's interesting also to think about how long the ark has been in the house of Abinadab. It will rest with Obed-Edom for only three months, but in that time its presence will bless him and his entire household. After all the years that it's been with Uzzah's family, there is no such recording of blessing. It seems that Uzzah and Ahio are Abinadab's grandsons. The term for son here can equally mean grandson. So Uzzah has grown up with the ark there all his life. And yet it has simply been a box, a relic, a museum piece, if you like, which it was his duty to preserve. For him, it's not provided an encounter with the living God until today. Uzzah doesn't celebrate and dance with abandon before the ark. He's been the one to protect it and preserve it, the one to manage the affairs of this state treasure. So Eugene Peterson concludes, in this imaginative context, we can guess that Uzzah's reflexive act reaching out to steady the ark as the oxen stumbled, wasn't the mistake of a moment. It was a piece of his lifelong obsession with managing the ark. Uzzah's death wasn't sudden. It was years in the making, the dead works accumulating like dead men's bones within him, suffocating the spirit of praise and faith and worship. How else could the ark have ever come to be placed on a cart so that it needed steadying? How else could he have tried to care for the object but have been so careless of the reality of God's presence? How else could he have imagined that his hand was more holy than the threshing floor? Uzzah died because he failed to recognize the holiness of God. David's response to this is easy to identify with. First, he's angry with God. It's interesting that David's anger at God does not provoke God's anger at David. Let me tell you, God can handle it when you're angry with him, when you're perplexed and frustrated. Jesus had a remarkable ability not to worry about being misunderstood. He shows us that God can deal with the, the wrong-headed anger we feel towards him, sometimes for years and years. But David doesn't simply stick with anger, that his plans have failed so spectacularly and so publicly. He moves on to fear. See, he knows what happens when you offend the living God. There are all those stories about the ark. But for David, there's also the example of King Saul who lost his throne and ultimately his life because he offended against the living God. He has the sense, at least, to leave the ark with Obed-Edom, a Levite and a Kohathite. And he takes three months to reflect on this experience. It's only when he hears reports of God's blessings on Obed-Edom that he conceives of returning to his plan. And we can see from the way that he does so that he's moved on entirely from his anger and fear. There's a great danger when we realize that we did not do things for the Lord the way they should have been done. When we managed his affairs 
but we didn't manage them correctly. And the danger is that we become legalistic. David recognizes that while it was God's will to bring the ark to Jerusalem, he has not gone about it the correct way. In the parallel account to this one in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, David calls together the heads of the Levitical families and tells them, it was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the account goes on. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders, as Moses had commanded, in accordance with the word of the Lord. This time, David ensures that the details are attended to. But that could have been all he did. To save face, and in case of another error, only the priests might have been sent. That would have fulfilled the letter of the law. In these circumstances, with one failure behind us, legalism can appear an attractive option. Let's rein things in. Let's make sure we do everything properly, according to the rules. But this is not what David does. His celebrations this time, if anything, are even bigger. This time he dresses for the occasion. Every six steps, they stop to make a sacrifice. Uh, the meat would have been cooked and given out to the crowds as part of the celebration. He distributed masses of gifts, loaves of bread and cakes of dates and raisins, so that everyone could join in the feast. And of course, he danced. This is what the account has been leading to. David dancing before the Lord with all his might. Everything surrendered. Everything abandoned to God. This is not legalism. Yes, he got the details right, but he also got the occasion right. We mark God's presence in our midst with worship. The opposite of the failure to recognize the holiness of God is not starchy legalism. It is abandonment in worship. In fact, real worship depends on recognizing the holiness of God. Humble worship comes from a place of recognition that we have no claim to the Lord's presence in our midst. So when we find that he chooses to be present among us, Wild celebration is entirely appropriate as a response. And it's the nature of worship that's at stake at the end of this account. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Michael was David's first wife, the younger daughter of King Saul. She was in love with David from the time that he joined Saul's court. And Saul gave her to David in marriage for defeating Goliath, hoping that she would be a snare to him. But in fact, she was loyal to David rather than to her father, warning David when Saul sent men to kill him. The last time we met her was a long time ago, back in 1 Samuel chapter 19. 
before David's years on the run from her father. Then she was at another window, lowering David out of it to safety. Now, years later, her feelings have radically changed. She is her father's daughter. In case we don't get this, the author doesn't simply use her name in these last few verses of the chapter, but three times he calls her daughter of Saul, daughter of Saul, daughter of Saul. Michael's words in verse 20 drip with sarcasm. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. It's easy for us to assume, because of her reference to slave girls, that what we have here is a simple case of jealousy. But that's not what we're told. In verse 16 again, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. The author makes no mention of the slave girls as Michael looks down from her window. It is David's form of worship she detests. She is her father's daughter because she puts David's position, the regard in which he is seen by others, and therefore, of course, the regard in which she is seen by others, above God. But she has David's audience wrong. His dancing is not a spectacle for the people. It's an act of worship. It's an act of worship in which even David's self-consciousness is surrendered to the Lord. Michael desires him to be self-controlled in order to present the appropriate image to his subjects. David is making joyous, abandoned, sacrifice of praise because he recognizes that he is a subject of a higher king. So he responds in a way that pins her thinking back in the past. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. And he goes further adding, I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Real worship requires humility. Real worship requires a, a relinquishing of self-consciousness, an abandonment of concern about what others think of us. Nothing else makes sense when we realize who we are before the white-hot holiness of God. The point of this passage is not to make us feel guilty that we don't feel comfortable dancing in church. In this account, there's a clear contrast between Uzzah's act in attempting to preserve the Lord's dignity and David's act in abandoning his own dignity before others as he worships the Lord with all his might. The call of the passage is to recognize the holiness of God not by creating rules and regulations so that we don't cause offense, but by becoming true worshipers. And true worshipers are those who are becoming less and less conscious of themselves and more and more conscious of God. 
David went to bring the ark, representing the presence of God to its rightful place at the heart of his kingdom. Our worship, too, is an invitation to the Lord to be present in his rightful place at the heart of our life. Even David, with only a physical object to move, did not succeed the first time. He was bitterly disappointed and could have given up forever. But he kept listening out for what the Lord was doing and tried again even more wholeheartedly the next time. It's no simple matter inviting the Lord to take up his rightful place. It takes time and effort to worship well. It costs us to pray more of you, Lord, in my life because more of him means less of us. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And that's what Paul is talking about when he urges us to give our whole selves to God as a living sacrifice, which is our true worship. Like David, we worship for an audience of one. And the white-hot holiness of our God necessitates humble, unselfconscious, and undignified worship. Worship that neither tries to protect God's dignity nor our own in the eyes of others. A few weeks from now, this church will welcome a new minister of worship, Dr. Benjamin Hewitt, a doctor of music, an experienced worship leader and choir conductor. Many of us, myself included, will be so tempted to push on him our own well-meaning agendas for protecting and preserving the worship of First Baptist Church. But we must ask only one thing of him when he comes to guide our worship. And that is that he would show us how to be more undignified. Will you pray with me? Lord, when we read a passage like this one, we're aware of the poverty of our worship. We recognize that there is so much of ourselves that we hold back from you. And that we're far too concerned with how others think of us. And not enough about how we can bless your name. Lord, teach us to surrender more of ourselves to you. And to become more aware of your presence among us. And more aware of your holiness. Today I pray that out of your glorious riches you would strengthen us with power through your spirit within us so that Christ would be welcomed more completely into our hearts by faith. And I pray that as we surrender more of ourselves to you, you would give us power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep, how great your love for us is that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.